In this interview, I'm joined by Professor Makila Swales, a consultant clinical psychologist, author, and DBT trainer who has trained more than 1,000 professionals in the approach. I would say there are very few people on the planet who know as much about DBT as Makila, so it was a real delight to have this conversation with her, in which we cover how DBT combines the best of Eastern and Western philosophy into one modality, and what Makila learned from training under Marsha Linehan, why everything, including thoughts and emotions, can be thought of as behaviours, and the therapeutic benefits of this perspective, the four core elements of DBT, including how the therapy is structured, and why DBT requires a team or community of therapists. If you're interested in a deeper dive after this interview, you can learn more about the DBT approach by going to www.dbt-training.co.uk. Okay, Makila, welcome to the show. Um, for anybody that's never heard of it before, how would you describe DBT in a very basic way? That's a really challenging question for something that's so complex and rich, but DBT or dialectical behavior therapy is a, it's a, an evidence-based um, psychological treatment that has been developed primarily for people who have intense emotion dysregulation and who tend to cope with that by um, engaging in behaviors that like regulate the emotion in the short run, but cause problems in the long term. So like suicidal behaviors, self-harm, drugs, um, uh, binging, vomiting, those sorts of things. Um, and it's a treatment that really draws on two sort of really very established traditions. One is behaviorism, which has a long tradition in psychological treatment. And then the other is actually Zen mindfulness, which um, comes from a, an even longer, much, much, much longer tradition um, within Eastern culture and practice. And so it's it's a synthesis, which is where the word dialectical comes in. It, it, it draws these two very contrasting things together because behaviorism is about change and Zen mindfulness and Zen philosophy is all about um, acceptance. It draws these two things together to um, provide a comprehensive treatment for people who have quite complex difficulties and I think I'm going to stop there because you said briefly I'm sure we'll get to unpack some of these things as we talk more um, yeah yeah there's a lot in there and we'll cover we'll cover that as we move through the interview um, but that's a good good way to set it up for sure um, what would you say the benefits of DBT are as compared with other forms of psychotherapy like something like I don't know, maybe like something like CBT or person-centered. What's What would you say the benefits of DBT are? Well, I mean, the thing is, any psychological treatment has distinct advantages with particular populations and particular types of difficulties. And it has, you know, CBT has a strong evidence base for some um, conditions and, and um, um, Rogerian counselling also um, is good in some contexts. So the thing is, it's really more about what, what populations and what contexts is DBT really good, good for. And DBT has its strongest evidence base for people who often get the label of personality disorder um, and so who have a pattern of behavior that has gone on for several several years and um, where they really struggle both 
in terms of their interpersonal relationships and also in terms of their sense of who they are as a person. I'm not a big fan at all of the label of personality disorder. It's extremely stigmatizing. However, that is the label that is often given. And because of the way research is done, that DBT has had most research um, done with people whose problems are labeled in that way. And so DBT has a really strong evidence base for people who get the label of something called borderline personality disorder and who also um, are suicidal and have um, self-harming behaviors. So, so that's the group for whom this treatment really works very well. I mean, there are other evidence-based treatments for people who have those problems and that's, that's important because no one treatment can be good for everyone. So, you know, mentalization, um, based therapy is a good evidence base for this client group also schema focused therapy which is a a branch or a form of cognitive behavior therapy so um but the thing that dbt really does well is for people who um uh, have a lot of impulsivity and a lot of um complex problems sometimes it's called comorbidity where a person has problems that get lots of different labels so perhaps um personality disorder depression, anxiety, um, maybe substance misuse. It's really, it really is designed to help people who have multiple complex problems. And that's who it works best with um, is that group. There has been some work to look at um, because of course, a, a treatment like DBT and, and some of the others I mentioned is actually very complex and quite intensive to offer. And so there's been some investigation into sort of briefer forms of, of DBT. Um, and um, there is some evidence for sort of less severe difficulties that skills training, which is part of DBT might be quite effective. But also a very recent uh, randomized study showed that actually six months of DBT was just about as effective as 12 months of DBT. And I think as we do more research, we get to understand more um, what any treatment is good at and also how you might modify it to try to retain the effectiveness but not make it so intensive uh, for the person who has to do it yeah 100 um so whenever i was just searching for this it struck me you know obviously this is mainly for people with uh borderline personality disorder and yes. things like that but it struck me you know this is grounded in some really solid and deep philosophy and I'm just curious, you know, how has, you know, learning, learning this and applying it, and I suppose you've been so immersed in this, in this for so long, how has this benefited you personally and how might these kind of ideas benefit the average person? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I think that's true of, of many of the things that end up in psychological treatments is that they're a benefit to any of us. Um, I mean, I think it's, yeah, that's one of the things I would say about DBT, I think particularly because there's a strong element of it, which is a whole raft of skills, there are sort of like 66 skills in the DBT skills training curriculum, and they're all designed around um, helping you manage emotions, helping to deal with crises, helping with interpersonal effectiveness, and so there's a real readily applicable element, and, and DBT is a treatment, it actually asks you to first apply the treatment to yourself, before you would try applying it to everyone else. So, you know, you have to practice all of these skills yourself. And so I think it's had a very profound effect um, on me. In fact, you know, I, I, I don't know that I can even conceptualize 
handling things and coping in my own life without thinking about dbt skills um you know i think the that one strong element is mindfulness and so um that i think has been really helpful um as a person certainly as a young person i was quite anxious and had a tendency to always be panicking and thinking about things in the future and um and that sort of capacity to just notice that that's where my mind is going and kind of to bring myself back um i think has always been very helpful but i think the most profound um impact on me although of course now that we're all thinking about the planet and we should all be flying less um it's perhaps less profound than it was at the time which is but was that um i for most of my early life was a flight phobic and um uh and really disliked flying i didn't avoid it too much but because it was necessary for various things but i really didn't like it at all and i was quite abjectly terrified um whilst flying um but i decided that really that the things that my clients were frightened of um and the things that they'd had to put up with and had to deal with in their life were really substantially more um well were substantially more than than what i had to deal with and so it really was incumbent upon me to apply the treatment to myself to overcome this particular problem um and so i set about really um applying the treatment systematically to myself and um you know including you know kind of i you know i even had a colleague a dbt colleague make like a little kind of loop of dbt skills that i could listen to while i was flying and that i really embraced the whole idea of exposing myself to the fear of flying and really engaging with that and getting rid of all my safety behaviors but using the framework of dbt to really help that and um and yeah, so I mean, it really did transform my life. I mean, I love flying now, but of course now because of the planet, I try not to do it so much, but it really did have a very profound effect of something that I was really abjectly terrified of. Um, the only downside, of course, and I think this is quite interesting, actually, because it does reveal something about the treatment is that, um, and if anyone's listening to this, who's a flight phobic, they'll know that the one thing about being a flight phobic is when you land, there's nothing quite like the ecstasy of, of landing, because of course you've survived death and you get this absolute rush. And of course, if you cure your flight phobia, you don't get that anymore. Um, so you do <laughs> tolerate a bit of a loss. Um, and, and I think that taught me something as well about uh, when I'm working with people is that, you know, we can think about um, the importance of changing our behavior and doing new things that are more skillful and more effective and maybe better for us and sometimes there are unanticipated consequences and so i always try to think about that what what and try to work with people to think about what might they lose by changing their behavior and how might we mitigate any downsides of the of the loss you know so yeah i think the other place that it's really helped me actually is um in, in working in with public healthcare systems um I think it can be so easy to feel very burnt out in those systems. And I found the, the sort of the non-judgmental stance of um, DBT very helpful, also combined with the sort of the dialectical position that, um, you know, when you're working in a public healthcare system, there are lots of different layers of the organization, all which have different requirements, different um, things that they have to do, different priorities. And sometimes these things can really um, clash you know, for example, a system might want to really deliver evidence-based healthcare. Um, and at the same time, they want to keep their waiting lists really low. And, you know, if you have a, an intensive treatment, that doesn't go so well with keeping waiting lists low. And sometimes this can lead to lots of conflict and 
that often is a source of where people feel burnt out. Whereas I think coming at it from a dialectical position, you can start to see that there is merit in both of these different positions and that everybody's trying to do the best they can with the goals and priorities that they've been given. And how might we together recognize and value those different positions and try to find solutions that respect both sides? And I, so I think those ideas have really been helpful to me, both in um, not just obviously working with people clinically, but also in trying to work with systems and um, in implementing large projects, particularly where people have different multiple competing priorities. 100%, 100%. Um, your, your example of, you know, landing, uh, whenever you sort of get over your fear of flying and landing um, and you, you don't get the ecstasy anymore, it sort of reminded me of uh, being like 16, 17 and going to nightclubs here in the UK. And whenever you got in, it was the best part of the night because like you weren't sure if you're going to get in. And then whenever you actually get the 18, um, all that that's taken away, you know? Yeah, no, right. No, yeah. it's true. It's true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, so DBT was developed by Marsha Linehan. Um, yeah who I think you actually trained under, is that right? I did, I did. I mean, I, I you like many people, I had, you know, she, she would do these, what she called intensive trainings, where there was a kind of a, a first week where she taught us intensively. It's called intensive training for a reason, but when she did it, when I trained back in 1994, it was very intensive. You know, we would start at 8.30 in the morning and go till five, then we'd have a couple of hours off for dinner and then we'd be back again in the evening for another couple of hours. And so she would teach for the whole week. Um, and really it was kind of pumping in all the information about how to uh, do the treatment. And then we were sent off for a period of time in which we had to get a DBT program up and running, start working with some clients, running some skills classes. And then we'd come back for a second week where we would have to present our work and she would give us consultation. And so I had the great pleasure to be taught by her back in the early nineties. and also subsequently, one of her graduate students who worked with her much more closely, you know, she had a number of graduate students over the year who, who worked who worked with her for sort of years at a time. Um, but we were able to get one of her graduate students to come over to the UK and she, um, uh, in a way, I continued my training with her uh, to kind of um, really develop my capacity to do it properly. Um, but yeah, no, I started off with Marsha back in Seattle in 1994. Yeah. No, she seemed like an incredible individual. Like, not only was she a behaviorist and an academic, she was also a Zen Roshi. Is that right? Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, she, she, when she started with the treatment, she wasn't a, a Zen Roshi. I mean, she, um, it's a really interesting story how the, the treatment came to be. She was trained as a behaviorist. And um, her real passion was to to deliver an effective treatment for people who were suicidal. That was her her primary aim and although we didn't know at the time of the when she developed the treatment she subsequently wrote a book and a memoir in which she talked about her own experience of mental health difficulties as a young woman um, and how she had really felt very powerfully that what she wanted to do if she was to get through her own difficulties which she did she wanted to develop an effective treatment to help people who were suffering in a similar way Mm -hmm. Um, and so that really drove her to um you know get her education it wasn't easy for her given the difficulties that she'd had and um and so behaviorism was the thing that she really wanted to do and so she set off applying behavioral um uh therapy to people who were very suicidal Uh, and she selected people who had a lot of suicidal behavior which was this a wise thing to do if you're trying to develop a treatment 
Um, and so she selected people who get this label of personality disorder. Now, what she found was that um, when she tried to apply this behavioral treatment, that, that did not go so well. In fact, she said, and other people have quoted her as saying that it blew up when she tried that, that um, the push for change when you have such a lot of um, internal distress in your own life, and there are so many problems that you feel that you need to resolve, um, it's actually to, to be pushed constantly for change is actually it's it, it not only is it difficult, but also it feels invalidating because actually you feel like you don't have the capacity to make those changes. Um, so um, the people that she was trying to help didn't come back for the treatment or they found it very difficult. And so she was thinking that she needed to find a, a sort of a sort of complementary way of doing it. I mean, I think initially she, she actually did go completely to the other side and think, oh, I'll just do acceptance. But of course, if you do just do complete acceptance, the problem with that is if you just sit totally with acceptance with, with people who've got such a lot of pain and so many problems is that that might work a little bit, but then actually the person starts to think, well, actually, if you understood how much pain I was in, you would be doing something about it or helping me do something about it. Um, and so this is where you kind of get this move. And often therapists, maybe some people listening to this who've not come across DBT would have worked with clients with these sorts of difficulties, might have had this experience themselves that they've set off trying to help somebody change. That's been too difficult. Clearly the client said, no, it's too much. And they've switched to the other side, but then that's also caused problems. And so Marsha had this experience, but what she decided to do then was to see if she could find a way of bringing these two things together. And so she, she looked um, to like, well, where would I find, who are the people who know about acceptance? Who knows about acceptance? And um, I mean, she herself had a, a, a bit of experience in sort of contemplative practice, uh, more in the Catholic tradition, um, but also she was very aware of the um, Buddhist tradition um, and Zen. And so she, she pursued that line. Um, she went to Chasta Abbey first and then on to other, uh, another Zen teacher. And she um, really focused on um, developing that side of, of, of um, I mean, I would say her skill set. I'm not sure that's how you would conceptualize it if you're a Zen person, but um, she worked on really developing her understanding of acceptance. And she decided to come back and try it. And she tells these wonderful stories in her, her biography of how she, you know, she set off trying to do, um, you know, mindfulness practices, which did not go down at all well. And she, she thought perhaps maybe all this sitting wasn't the thing. So she decided to do mindful walking and sort of got up and tried to encourage people to do mindful walking. But then when she turned around, there was nobody following her or maybe one client. So what she realized was that she needed to somehow, and I mean, I think this was part of her genius really, to be honest, because I think some people would have given up, but she, I think she really felt that she had found something that was so important that she tried to think, okay, how could I distill these principles, these Zen principles into a series of skills and practices that I can help my clients to do? And so she, she really worked on distilling mindfulness in its essence from Zen into a set of skills that you could teach clients, really breaking it down. And, um, um, and so, uh, and she would kept taking that back to the, her own Zen teachers to, to really get that sort of um, finalized. And so um, 
that was kind of in the early days, but she did continue. So you're right, she did continue um, with being in the in the Zen community and she did become a Roshi herself. So she was in, you know, later in her career, both a professor of um, psychology, professor of behaviorism, and she was a Zen teacher, a, a Roshi. Um, and uh, so those two things were really very powerful in her own life. And of course, are very much represented in the, in the treatment. Yeah. It's like she has brought together the best of Western philosophy and yes. Eastern philosophy into one, yes. one modality, which is... Into one modality. I mean, it's interesting. Other people also around that time did similar things shortly thereafter. I mean, John Kabat-Zinn, uh, before Marsha, had started to do mindfulness-based stress reduction. And then a little bit afterwards... Um, Mark Williams, Zindel Ziegel and John Teasdale worked with John Kabat-Zinn to bring cognitive therapy and mindfulness together in MBCT. But Marsha was definitely um, the, the first to really try and marry um, behaviorism with mindfulness. And then others uh, um, have done uh, similar sorts of things subsequently. Yes. Um, and I definitely think she really did try to bring those things together. And I think what was perhaps unique about her um, and perhaps it's true of other people like um, Mark Williams and, and John Teasland's and Zegel is that they really have embraced both sides. It's not that they've just, oh, we'll just take a bit of that and bolt it on. They've really tried to embody what it means um, in mindfulness and try to then really kind of connect it in a really meaningful way. Yeah. 100%, 100%. So I, I want to get into, you know, actually looking at how the therapy uh, mm -hmm. works and the best yeah. practice and everything before we go there it seems to be that the central problem that dbt tackles is emotional dysregulation and yeah. that might be the thing that is at the root of the problem of borderline mm -hmm. personality disorder so um what would you say are the primary causes of emotional dysregulation in people yeah no, you're very right about that neil that, that dbt does say that um emotion regulation is the central um driving force of the problems that that get labeled as borderline personality disorder i mean theorists from other perspectives on personality disorder would disagree about that and i think that's uh, legitimate you know that there are interesting conversations to be had about that but dbt does take that view that emotion dysregulation is central and that emotion dysregulation then drive some of the other problems such as the interpersonal difficulties the sense of self dysregulation the behavioral dysregulation and of course if your behavior is dysregulated you know if you're suicidal or um, alcoholic or whatever or your uh, interpersonal relationships are, uh, are causing you difficulty then of course that's going to feed back into your emotion dysregulation so those things kind of get tangled out up but conceptually from a dbt perspective we would say that emotion dysregulation is kind of at the heart and, and DBT is a sort of, a, it takes the perspective that um, these problems um, arise as a result of a transaction between biological vulnerability and what we would call invalidating environments. And so um, biological vulnerability, essentially, we do know that people who have these sorts of difficulties, there is a degree of this which is heritable. So there is a kind of genetic component. Um, and we also know that people who have these difficulties have a lot of adversity in their lives. And DBT would just simply say that the, uh, the con relative contribution of these two things varies a lot 
person to person. But I think the key thing is that, um, that these things transact. So it's not just that you, okay, we have a bit of vulnerability and then you have something unpleasant happen to you and the two things together, okay, now we have these problems. Rather it's that, um, you know, sort of, um, you might be a vulnerable person biologically, but what happens to you in utero, in early life, um, can have a really big effect. So even if you know, you're perhaps a little sensitive, but if your environment just can't meet your sensitivity needs, um, then that will exacerbate your sensitivity from a neurological perspective. And, and although um, when Marsha proposed her theory, there wasn't a lot of evidence for this, actually there is a lot of evidence for this now, that you know, the early childhood adversity can contribute to neurological sensitivity. And then of course, as you become more sensitive, you know, say as a, a small baby, you know, you, you, you um, are crying and your parent is depressed and struggles to meet that, you of course then will cry more, which of course will make your parent who's already struggling feel even more inadequate and find it even more difficult and they find it even harder. And then of course that, you know, makes you more sensitive. So it transacts in this way over time. And so that means that you can see people who have these problems who um, might either have, you know, kind of been born highly sensitive and had what to other people might not look like major issues happen to them in their life, but there was a mismatch between what they needed and what they were able to get and that that's contributed. Or alternatively, we might see people who actually, if we'd been able to capture it, might actually have not been biologically very vulnerable, but the extent of the trauma and the early adversity actually made you know, their biological system more sensitive. And so it's a transaction in these things over time. And we talk in DBT about these invalidating environments that can really contribute. And they have sort of three characteristics. One is that these environments tend to say either explicitly or even sort of indirectly that your personal internal experiences of your emotions, your feelings, your physical state are kind of um, inaccurate. Um, you shouldn't be having them. There's something wrong with you that you're feeling that way. You know, they sort of signal that you somehow there's something wrong with you if you're having the experience that you're having. Um, you know, so if a, a child somehow communicates that they're anxious about going to school, maybe they've been bullied or something. Um, but the the family environment basically says, oh, you know, you shouldn't be bothered about that. It's it's not important or, or doesn't even attend to the fact that you're having a difficult time. Then that's a sort of an invalidation of your your inner experiences. The other thing those environments often do is that because in part, you know, if you have that happen to you, if you're told that that doesn't make sense, you shouldn't be feeling that way, you know, that there's nothing there to help you learn how to manage this problem. And so obviously those feelings intensify and often the expression will intensify and then sometimes the environment will respond. Um, and so, of course, then what you've learned is that the only time you get responded to is when your emotions and feelings are very intense and very um, evident. And I'm not talking here about necessarily about consciously learning that. I mean, that that's that's what happens. Your behavior gets shaped out of your awareness. You know, we're talking about small children here about how this happens. And so they're not thinking they're strategically about mm, my notice. My parent is only responsive to me when I am very dramatic. I mean, they, they, they don't have the capacity to think that way. It's just something that is happening in their environment so that's another problem and then the third aspect is that 
these environments often oversimplify how difficult it is to solve life's difficulties that essentially you get the message that you just got to do better try harder and really it shouldn't be that difficult and so if you're a person who's you know had a lot of trauma got a lot of um, difficulty in your life a lot of emotional distress that message doesn't really help you to cope um, and so but what happens is you end up thinking well it's all my fault it's all my problems I'm the problem here and then that just kind of compounds the difficulties um, so those would be the sorts of things that we would say would really kind of be the contributing factors um, and that um, it, but that particularly that um, these things kind of can transact over time so it's really more a poorness of fit um, between the person and their environment and that can take these different forms um, it is the case that a lot of people who end up with this um, uh, label have experienced significant trauma um, in some studies it's between 65 to 70 percent but there are a proportion of people who who haven't experienced what would traditionally be labeled as trauma but they've had this experience of chronic invalidation um, over time yeah really interesting and really i suppose just sad you know that it's that terribly happens. sad it's terribly yeah. sad and and the, the patterns of behavior that people have learned you know the way i think about it when i see a person who, who comes to me and you know they're telling me about these problems that they're having and the problems in their relationships and, and also their problems with their relationship with themselves so in dbt being a very behaviorist treatment we when we talk about behavior we're not just talking about external behavior others see we're also talking about our internal behaviors like our thinking and our emotions um that these patterns that the people have learned that these were really their best effort to cope in extraordinarily difficult circumstances given what resources that they had and so the 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 real tragedy is that that um that those things that they developed to try to protect themselves to try to survive in difficult environments are just now not working for mm -hmm. them and in fact they're often ending up being criticized or punished for actually what was their what is their best effort to manage a really set of challenging circumstances and i, I think that's that it is it, that's the real sadness um, so, so it was like an adaptive response that has now become maladaptive later yes, in life. Exactly. That's exactly mm. right. Yes. And I suppose that probably links well with things like addiction and stuff too. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned it there briefly, um, but in this view, so DBT is a radical, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm getting this right, but a radical behaviorist approach. Yes. yes. And that, that means that emotions thoughts feelings all of these things are viewed as behaviors yes so why why does dbt take this view and what's the benefit to clinicians of having this view would you say well i mean i think the reason it takes this view i guess is because you know our founder and those of us who who, who kind of traded the treatment kind of think that this is um uh, this is the most effective way of characterizing behaviors i mean i guess you're talking to dbt therapists they would vary some of them might adapt adopt that approach whilst they're doing the treatment but they might not adopt it in the rest of their you know life but i think there are some of us who, who um actually kind of think that there is a, a substantial part of us as human animals that you know that we are governed by 
um, the, the environment which prompts our behavior and then the reinforcers or punishers of that behavior, perhaps a little bit more than we like to think. Um, and um, I think the real advantage of thinking about emotions and thoughts and feelings and sensations as behaviors is that then you can use the principles of behaviorism to treat those things. So, for example, a common problem that uh, people who might have DBT um, would experience might be hopelessness. Yeah. Um, and we know this is a really um, not only is hopelessness extremely unpleasant to experience, um, but also we know it's a significant risk factor for um, suicidal behaviours and death by suicide. Um, so it's an important thing to treat. And, you know, many um, therapists will be thinking about how do I treat hopelessness? Well, one way to treat hopelessness, which is the way I think, which is a little bit more standard, is to kind of, you know, maybe either challenge the reasons about why the person is hopeless, you know, kind of essentially say, you know, okay, I know things seem bad now, but actually things are going to improve and, you know, you will feel better and, you know, these problems that you've got, you will get over them. So sort of challenging the, um, you know, the kind of the, I guess, the premise of the hopelessness, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or some forms might try to suggest that maybe um, that it may, things may look hopeless, but actually they're not as hopeless as they seem. So kind of, challenging so in some ways challenging the content of the thinking now both of those things are perfectly reasonable things to do and can sometimes be extremely helpful so i'm not wanting to say that, that one shouldn't do those or that they're not helpful what behaviorism would add into that would be more looking at the process so i would you know i might do those other things i've just said but i would also say you know now when you experience those hopeless thoughts what do you notice happens next? What happens to your emotions? Do they become more intense or less intense? Do you get any urges or, you know, when you think those hopeless thoughts? Um, and so then we might um, think, okay, given that what we'll typically find is that um, the hopeless thoughts will be fulfilling some kind of function, um, you know, that they might um, alleviate, um, some emotions because it may you know the person might feel hopeless and think okay I can, I can kill myself and so therefore they feel relief from their um distress or it may be that um when they think hopeless thoughts they think they end up thinking a lot about why they're hopeless and um all the things that have gone wrong but what's happening is that they're no longer thinking about whatever the problem was that set off the hopeless thinking. And so it takes them away from having to solve the problem. So what it helps us do, it just gives us another way of thinking about things, another thing to try and to rather than change the content of the hopeless thinking necessarily, but we might bring mindfulness to just noticing, oh, that hopeless thoughts have shown up and hopeless thoughts are leading me somewhere else. And if I can just notice my hopeless thoughts and just think, if is there, something else that I could be doing right now, some other kind of activity that I could be doing, or is there a problem I need to solve? It just gives us another way of kind of intervening. Um, I think a, a particular example might be that with suicidal thinking, sometimes um, what happens it, for people with these difficulties that thinking about suicide can be soothing, it can make them feel relaxed. 
Um, and so one of the things that you can do thinking about this simply just as a behavior is thinking about suicide, then, you know, your emotions kind of, you start to feel relaxed is the therapist can actually do things to change that association or change that consequence. So that in fact, to make sure that the person does not feel relaxed after thinking about suicide, um, you know, by highlighting what a problem this is, is really difficult and kind of changing that association. So it, it um, it gives you an additional line of treatment um, by thinking of these things as behaviours rather than getting caught in the content. Um, another common way we might um, deal with this, actually, you, you've got me on a bit of a roll here now thinking about all the different ways it's helpful, but um, it's quite common for clients to want to give up treatment and say, you know, I want to drop out of this treatment. And what I commonly see is therapists getting a little bit caught in the content about, you know, what the merits of treatment are, whether you should stay or whether you should go. Whereas thinking about this as simply a behavior, you know, the client has simply said, I want to drop out of treatment. And then, you know, asking, you know, what was going on just before you said that? What happened after that? Mm -hmm. And then rather than getting into the content, changing the things that go around that, you know, maybe the client's feeling anxious about what they're being asked to do in treatment. So we need to treat the anxiety. It's actually not about leaving treatment at all. It's about the emotion of anxiety. Or maybe they're feeling really sad about lack of progress in the treatment, in which case we need to treat the sadness. So it's not really about leaving treatment. And the thing is, if you get caught in the content, you're kind of missing the point. Um, so kind of trying to see what the clients say, what they're experiencing as a behavior in a sequence and seeing what the function of that is can help you really get to the core of the issue, I would say, from my perspective. That's so interesting. So it's like you're not just looking at the, the content, you're looking at the process all around the content and the yeah. context. And that is as important, if not more important than the thing itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so I think this is one of the things often people, I think, think of behaviorism as being somewhat mechanistic. And I think, you know, that there is a kind of a, a sort of a, that's a valid uh, interpretation. And at the same time, I think it can really lead you to some really central issues around emotion for the person by trying to see what the function of these behaviors is. What, what's the problem that the person is trying to solve with these behaviors? And that's the thing we want to focus on and help them solve and find other more effective ways to solve the problem. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, so we talked there a lot about hopelessness and mm -hmm. from listening to your weekend university, university talk, um, the thing that really jumped out at me was when you said that DBT isn't a suicide prevention program, it's a life worth living program. You know, can you tell us about that and the significance of that yeah. philosophy? Yeah, and, and I think this this really came, I think, from Marsha Linehan's own experience, I think. Um, you know, that's how she entitles her, her memoir, Life Worth Living, is that I think that, you know, psychological treatments can get a little bit too focused on reducing symptoms. I mean, that's important. And obviously, one of the reasons that people come to treatment is they don't, that the symptoms they're experiencing are unpleasant. But the thing is, I think what, what Marsha realizes is that, that just reducing people's symptoms, that isn't the, the overarching goal. The overarching, you know, and, and also, if, especially if you're working with people who are coming who are suicidal, you know, her point would be, as is my point, is that, you know, people generally only want to kill themselves if their life is not worth living. 
you know, that people who have a satisfying life that they are happy with generally don't want to kill themselves. And so in a way, she took the behavior at face value, you know, that that's what um, clients were really experiencing. Um, and so it's really vital that, you know, another kind of core tenant of the treatment is that, you know, that the, 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 the responsibility of the therapist is to assist the person to get the light towards the life worth living that they want. Um, and, and the reason it's especially important is that actually sometimes in order to do that, you might have to take what we would call like a therapeutic risk, which is that, you know, certainly currently often in services, certainly in, in, the, in the UK, um, quite rightly, people, you know, we don't want people to die by suicide um, and we want to um, help people move through those crises. But with people who are chronically suicidal, sometimes, unfortunately, what happens is that they end up in systems which become more and more restrictive in order to prevent them from uh, dying by suicide. And of course, that's totally well-meaning. You know, it's they're trying to prevent that and, and hope that the person then will feel better and then and so on. Um, but often what we see is that the more restrictive you become, um, of course, the less worth living a person's life becomes and therefore you know people still die by suicide in those contexts and so sometimes in those circumstances I've worked in inpatient services you sometimes have to take a little bit of a risk and actually not restrict a person who actually might have strong urges to die in the service of helping them get a life worth living um, so you need to stay focused on the goal um, and to think about what it and work with the person find out you know if you're if you you know, often clients will come to say, you know, I say, you know, what are your life worth living goals? And often they've been socialized by services into saying, oh, you know, I want to be less depressed. Um, you know, I don't want to harm myself anymore. Or, um, you know, I want to have better, you know, I want to get on better with my family. Um, and, you know, those are all important things to know about a person. But the question I want to know is, well, you know, if you were less suicidal and if you managed your emotions better and if you got on better with your family, what would you be doing with your life? What would, what would your life look like? Um, and often people haven't thought about that for a long time, if ever. They've often been too afraid to think about it because they've often thought they never would get a life worth living. And so it's a really important thing to start the conversation and start the plans toward. It's unlikely to get a person all the way there. I mean, we, I guess we could say working on your life worth living is a lifelong goal, but, you know, we sincerely hope in DBT to try to get people more towards the life that they would like to live. Um, and, and I think it's a really important key part of this treatment is to take people, so when people are trying to die by suicide, they are saying something profound about their experience of life. Um, and that's what we want to try and help them to change in the ways they would like to change. Uh, that's again, very, very interesting. And I love that question that you asked there, um, just around, you know, if you weren't suicidal um, and what would, what would your sort of ideal life look like or what would it, you know, what would that be? This is maybe a little bit off topic, topic, but I'm just curious, have you found any other questions you've used in therapy to be particularly effective at, at moving clients or, if nothing comes to mind here, no worries, but um, just just curious. Yeah, in terms of life worth living goals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think one, I think, because often, you know, and some people watching this might be thinking, 
Um, yeah, but that's all very well. But when I say to my clients, you know, what would a life worth living be? And they, they say, well, I just want to be dead. Um, and I think one thing to to ask in all seriousness, I'm not talking about being flippant, is to ask, you know, for that person, um, if they were dead, what do they what would that do for them? What do they imagine that would be like? Um, because that can often give you an indication of what it is that's causing so much pain that the person wants to escape from. Um, I think people are often a bit worried about asking these questions, but actually the data show that actually it's much better just to ask people about these things, talk to them about them, because if you don't, it, it kind of gives the message that these things can't be discussed and that it really isn't so terrible. And, and so so I find that question a really important one is sort of, you know, what would being dead do for you? You know, if you were dead, what would what would that do? So I think I think that's a really useful question. And then more more generally um I, I i don't know if this is really but maybe this doesn't work in other treatments but in dbt um a really important question to ask is when you thought that or when you had that emotion what happened next so it's really into this process of you know when a certain experience happened, whether it's a thought, an emotion, or a behavior that you did, or a sensation, what happened next? Because it tells you something about the function of those things. Um, so, um, now that might not work at all in another treatment, you know, um, but um, certainly in DBT, that's a, a good question. What happened next? What did you notice happened next after um, you had that emotion, that thought? Um, and, and I guess questions along that line is that I think this is one of the things that's a hallmark of DBT. It's this behavioral specificity. It really wants to get into the specifics of what was experienced, what was done. Um, and so really kind of, and so as part of that, a really important thing is to distinguish thoughts from emotions from sensations because these things ha have different they function differently and how they relate to each other is really important in trying to help a person solve their difficulties and we're not really helped by the English language because we tend in English to use the word feeling for all of those you know I feel anxious I uh, feel hopeless because hopeless is a thought and um, you know I feel sick that's a sensation but yet the interventions for thoughts are different to the interventions for emotions and are different to the interventions for sensations. And so the sorts of questions that a DBT therapist really needs to ask is to try and distinguish thoughts from emotions. And when we have, you know, as humans, we have lots of these, um, what we would call um, emotion thought aggregates, you know? So you might have a person say, I felt abandoned, okay? Um, now, you really want to unpack that because abandoned would typically be, there'd be an emotion there, probably sadness, but it could be anger. So that would, you'd need to figure that out, or it could be shame actually, you know, so you'd need to figure that out. There would be some thoughts, you know, the typically thought I have been abandoned, that so-and-so has left me or, you know, or people are always leaving me, there'd be a series of thoughts about that. And then often there'd be a sensation of some kind that went with that. And that will probably link very closely to the emotion component. Um, but you'd want to know about that too. So 
as a DBT therapist, you want to get into those specifics because um, treating those things um, requires that you treat the, the different components separately. I think I've wandered way off your question. <laughs> no, that's some very productive wondering. Um, there's so much here we could cover, um, but obviously the, the time the time is limited. Um, but what was I going to say? Uh, oh, yeah. So the whenever I was sort of learning learning about this, I was shocked to find the the therapy. You know, whenever I actually f found out how this works, you know, how the therapy is actually given, I was like, "This is incredible! Like, this is the most ecological approach to therapy I've ever seen." You know, it's very contextual, um, and the so maybe I would love to ask you now um, about the four elements of of DBT. If you can maybe cover those, I think that would be useful for people yeah yeah so in terms of how the treatment is structured and, and it does really relate to that kind of contextual element and um um so um for now dbt has been adapted for different settings and so if you're in an inpatient setting things might look a little bit different but in an outpatient setting um dbt has four elements uh, one is um a skills group component and that the rationale for this if we go back to what we were saying about the the way in which a person has been has grown up is that there are key skills that they didn't learn about how to manage emotions distress interpersonal relationships so that's happens in the skills class and we think about that in behavioral terms as a place where you do skills acquisition where people learn new skills to deal with issues mm. Then, though, and we all know this from trying to learn new things, you know, if people watching this have tried to learn a language or try to, you know, play an instrument or play a sport, that just going to a class about it isn't going to be enough. Um, and so in the DBT individual therapy component, what we focus on is really trying to understand the precise controlling variables for the problems. And this is what I think you're meaning by sort of an ecological approach that so we kind of get into the nitty gritty of the detail of how for this person, um you know suicidal behavior um you know how it comes about and what follows it we get into that nitty-gritty and then we're really thinking of the things that the person's learned in skills class how can we tailor that to really solve the different points along this sequence of events to find a different way to solve the problem that the person is currently solving by maybe suicidal behavior or some other behavior that's problematic to them but also if you do that that's all well and good, but learning skills, practicing them, strengthening them in therapy, you know, when you're with a person who hopefully you get on with, who hopefully is warm and validating and supportive, is very different to being out there in your environment and trying these things um, in the context where actually maybe there are people around who are not very validating and not very supportive, where there are other things happening, other aspects of the situation that are more complex. And so in uh, DBT, we also um, encourage clients to call us between sessions for coaching in skills so that they can say you know kind of you know I know we talked about how I was going to handle my boyfriend but last week but he's just said this to me and you know he's stormed out and I don't know what to do and you know I kind of feel like I can't go I feel like my head's exploding can you help and then we can work on trying to um, help with that problem like in the real like when it's happening um, rather than sort of after the fact. 
Um, and so for the person in the treatment, they have these three modalities, we would call them skills, class, individual and access to the therapist via phone. Um, and then the therapists come to a consultation team meeting. And in that meeting, therapists um, bring themselves, they put themselves on the agenda and ask for help in solving the problems they are having in delivering the therapy. Um, when you work with people who are in a lot of despair, a lot of distress, and who also have behaviours that put them at risk, that can be quite stressful for therapists. And if therapists are stressed and don't get the right kind of support, they can then sometimes act in ways that are not necessarily as helpful to the client as they might be because the, the therapist is too afraid or or worried. Um, and so the purpose of the consultation team is for the therapist to be able to take problems that they're having to the team, get the perspective of other people, um, and that helps them to be more effective. And I think also just simply, as we said, our clients typically have very complex problems and any single person is not gonna be able to have all of the ideas that could help that person. So it's really like how you can, in a way your, your client gets the benefit of the wealth of experience of the consultation team. So there are those four elements um, which, which you have in, a, in an outpatient um, DBT programme. Um, in, in DBT for young people, often the, the parents or the caregivers would come along to the skills class alongside the young person and they might also have someone else they can call for coaching as well. Um, so how exactly it's done varies a little bit depending on context, but those kind of core elements are central to really any DBT programme. Um, skills individual to help you with your motivation and to kind of solve your problems and then some kind of way of generalizing your your skills i mean if you were doing a program on an inpatient unit it probably wouldn't be generalization by telephone but maybe by some people on the unit who knew skills who would coach you in the moment through it um, because they're there but um yeah so those are the main elements Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So just before we wrap up with those sort of final couple of questions, um, the other one, the other thing I'm sort of really curious to ask about is action urges. And mm -hmm. it seems that DBT, the principle in DBT is to help clients go in the opposite direction of action, the action urges that yeah. follow emotions. Can you tell us yeah. about that and why that, why yeah. that matters? Yeah. yeah. So, um, the DBT, like many other cognitive behavioral treatments, talks about how emotions are structured. And, you know, emotions have many different components. Um, you know, there's a kind of a thought kind of element, but there's also the sort of internal experiences. You know, emotions change our physiology. You know, they change the chemicals in our brain, the muscle tension in different parts of our body, how we sense them and so on. Um, and then they also have the external things that other people can see, you know, the actions that we do, the facial expressions that we have. Um, and I think people listening to this will be very familiar with the idea that um, in anxiety treatment, for example, we know a common action urge if you're anxious about something is to avoid, like me wanting to avoid going on planes. I remember when I was going to my first um, DBT intensive um, with my colleague from the, the adolescent unit, we were walking to the gate and my colleague said to me, because I was a flight phobic, remember, he said, why are you slowing down? And I wasn't even aware of it. But, you know, my action urge was not to go to the plane. It was to run. So we're very familiar with that, with um, fear. But it's actually true for other emotions, too. So sadness drives us to want to hide away and withdraw. Anger drives us to want to attack. Um, 
you know, so um, shame makes us want to hide away. So action urges um, drive us to act in accordance with the emotion. And, you know, if you think about the fear example, we know that if you continue to avoid things you're afraid of, over time your fear goes up. And it's the same with other things. So that one way to get an emotion to go down, assuming you want it to go down, is to act opposite to the action urge of the emotion. Yeah. So if you're really angry at something and actually, you know, now anger, of course, is a very useful emotion, but sometimes you have it. It's too intense. It's getting in your way that you want to go opposite to all of the urges. So, it was, you know, you might want to, you know, kind of stand up close to the person you're angry with. You furry your brow and you maybe clench your fists. And if you want your anger to go down, this is not going to happen if you do this. So you need to sit back. You need to let go. You need to change your facial expression. You also need to deal with any thoughts that you're having, which are angry. You need to go opposite to the action of thought. And then you will find that the emotion will come down. But I think one thing I do just want to say is it's important to remember that sometimes we don't actually want the emotion to go down because sometimes the emotion is telling you something important. Yeah. Um, and so in order to decide whether or not you need to act opposite to the emotion or in fact, something, or rather actually act with the action urge, you need to think about whether the emotional, the emotion itself or its intensity is warranted in the current circumstances. You know, so um, if, if someone is, um, you know, criticizing you in public and this is, you know, any of us would feel angry in this situation, you need just enough anger to actually tell them firmly to stop. Mm. You don't need so much that you want, if you're going to hit them, this probably would not work well for you. <laughs> um, but you need enough to be able to actually stop the behavior or, to, you know, whereas if you don't have sufficient um, and just kind of say, oh, yeah, no, it's all my fault. I shouldn't have, you know, no, no, I'm, I'm at fault. I'm at fault. I'm, you, you know, that that's not going to do well for you in the long run. So, so one of the things the arts in uh, DBT is to really work with a person to figure out how much of the emotion is warranted by the situation that they're in. How much of it do they want to keep? How much would fit with their values? And then you can work on acting opposite to get down to that bit, and then you can help them work on experiencing the emotion um, which is warranted. And this is sometimes really important. Some of the clients that we see because of the invalidating environment, sometimes they need to upregulate their emotion. They could do with more of it. Mm. I can think of a client of mine who discovered that her, her flatmate was stealing from her. And she, when I asked her about it, she, she, she did not feel angry about it at all. She felt like she probably deserved to be exploited. And so we had to work actually on upregulating a bit of anger. Now, not so much that she started attacking her flatmate, because that wouldn't have been helpful either, but she needed to have sufficient anger to be motivated to solve this problem. So, it, so I think sometimes this can be a problem that therapists can get a little bit caught on and they spend all their time trying to regulate emotion away, failing to recognize that emotion often tells you something important and often really is needed to get you to do certain things um so yeah and when we get to the little book the books that you wanted to recommend one of them really tackles that problem in a really excellent way um for therapists from any from any persuasion who are interested in in in, in knowing a little bit more about this yeah 
Brilliant. Well, you've just set it up. So now you've got to tell us the three books that you recommend yeah, every, okay. every therapist should read. Every therapist should read. Okay. So I think every therapist should read Regulating Emotion, The DBT Way by Christine Dunkley. And that's published by Routledge. And as I said, this, this book really covers all of the emotion, all of the main families of emotions and how you might regulate them down if that's what the client needs or how you might upregulate them or experience them if that's what the client needs. Um, and I think also for any therapist, it'll just get you more specific about the emotional vocabulary that you can use and then help your client to do the same. Um, I think if you're interested in knowing more about DBT, um, just in terms of, you know, for example, being able to orient clients or to direct them, then, uh, you know, I, I would recommend the small book I wrote with Heidi Hurd called Distinctive Features of, of, of DBT. Um, and then for, for people who are really interested, obviously, in, in doing the treatment, I mean, you know, there is no substitute for reading the treatment manuals, but they are not an entry level read, if you like, you know, if you wanted to get a flavor for what doing DBT is like um, in a more sort of much shorter way, then there's a lovely book by Kelly Kerner called How to Do DBT. Um, and that's a much more um, uh, accessible entry level kind of book about what it would be like to do DBT, uh, which I think would then, you know, then if someone wanted to go on to learn the thing, they'd have to obviously read the, the whole manual. I mean, I, I think I know you said only three and so I'm, I'm way over, but um, I think for anyone who's interested um, just more generally that they might find Marsha Linehan's memoir um, of interest because there's in, she talks about the treatment there in a more conversational way and also how it linked to her own life experience and so that's that's quite an interesting read I think for any therapist. I think that's a great shout that last one because I think whenever you are able to link theory to real life examples yes. especially from someone exactly. developed it you're going to learn it yeah. a lot better you know yeah. and for anybody that wants to maybe after listening to this maybe they're really interested in you know training dbt or going down that path what's the first steps that they can take would you say well i mean i think there are lots of places where you can you can get um like a, a, a two-day workshop which would introduce you often what we we suggest is that people start with the skills to learn and understand the skills and and those are useful to therapists from any background and there are lots of places if you go online you can find um two-day skills workshops which will give you a good grounding in the skills if you're wanting to learn how to deliver the treatment properly, you'll then need to do much more extensive training. And actually, many of the treatment providers um, who do this do, do it very similar. Um, training providers do it in a similar way to the way Marshall Linehan did with me is that, you know, you'll have, you know, five days of, um, of sort of intensive learning and then a, a, some some tasks to do and then a, a follow-up period so the sort of intermediate training is typically around about 10 days I mean different training providers do it differently but it's around about 10 days um, but then it's like any psychological therapy you would need supervision really to get to be able to you know become a um, you know a, a, a seasoned practitioner in the treatment um, yeah so, but definitely start with the skills because wherever you, you know, whatever training, whatever therapy you do, knowing those skills can be useful and helpful. And also that would give you enough of a flavor of the treatment to know if you wanted to go on to do more or whether skills was quite enough. Yeah. 
Awesome. Okay. Well, Michaela, that's really all we've got time for. Before you go, I just want to say, you know, I've been blown away by two things here in preparing for this interview. Just first is DBT itself. Like I didn't know that much about it, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm shocked by just the depth and richness of this approach. And then also just yourself as an ambassador for the approach, you're doing such a great job and the amount of, if anybody's got time and they want to do a follow-up, Michaela did a two-hour talk with the Weekend University and just the amount of depth and knowledge and everything that you're sharing is, is outstanding. So I just want to commend you on that and just keep it going. And... Thank you very much, Neil. Thank you very much for the opportunity to, to share DBT with a wider audience. Much appreciated. It's my pleasure. Anyway, I'll let you go, Michaela. Thanks so much and uh, talk to you soon, all right? All right, thank you. Bye-bye.